Anyways, let, let, let's, let's, uh, let's turn here, continue our study of Romans. Uh, we'll look at chapter 10 uh, in its entirety. Hope you've been enjoying Romans. Whereas we near the end, uh, feel free to text me your request or suggestion for the next book. And if you send me Revelation, I'll just go to tell you now. I'm going to say no. We're not going to do Revelation. So, in case you were thinking that, there's always somebody that does, right? All right, Romans chapter 10, starting there, verse one. Read with me. Paul writes. He says, "Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites." is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them, that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes about this righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Kind of a solemn ending to that text. Let's have a prayer and then we'll look at a few points here from this. Father, we, uh, we thank you just that we can be together. We can gather and fellowship with one another, God, that, that we can you know, remember your son and the sacrifice he's made as we take the bread and the wine together. And Father, as we look at uh, Romans 10 here together, Father, we pray you help us, God. Help us to, to have hearts that, that soberly hear the warnings that, that are here in this text, God. Help us also to to look at at your heart and Paul's heart and and be compelled uh, to be people who who are mission-focused and mission-oriented, God. Help us in all these things, God. Open up our minds, invigorate us if we're we're tired. Uh, Enable us by your Spirit to to really take your word and hide it in our heart, God. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. 
fantastic. As you can see on the screen there, you know, two points, uh, very simple, uh, but heaps of subpoints. okay? So about six points altogether, but, but two main ones, right? And, and, and even as I prayed, uh, there is an, an, there's an ominous ending to that text. There is a, a scary warning. If you were with us uh, last week, we looked at chapter 9, uh, which was relatively mind-bending uh, as, as Paul explores the, the idea of God's elect in terms of Israel. Uh, here he zooms in on Israel uh, and examines more closely why Israel does not accept the message. Why Israel, though they have such uh, tremendous spiritual privilege, has not turned to God. Right? And what, what you find here uh, when you look across the chapters, 9, 10, and 11, like I said, it's a, it's a difficult section of Romans to understand, uh, but Paul holds in, uh, in, in harmony, in balance, uh, things that in our mind are often not, right? Uh, you know, many people read chapter 9 and, and think, oh, there's no free will, right? Divine election, right? Uh, and there are things that Paul does discuss in chapter 9 that do push the bounds of our understanding of how God works. You know, we talked a little bit about last time we met uh, about how God's foreknowledge and the fact that he knows everything, that he stands outside of time and he sees the beginning and the end simultaneously. Uh, and like an incredible chess master, he knows uh, the end result of your choices that you make. It doesn't absolve you from responsibility. And that's what we see here in 10. He's going to lay very clearly into Israel's responsibility in not responding. Right? And again, he holds these things in, in, in harmony, you know, but uh, much of this chapter is, is, is a word of caution against us. You know, caution in, in terms of not allowing our hearts or our minds or our approach to Christianity uh, to end up making the same mistakes the Israelites had made. God's people, a privileged people, that's us, people who know the word, uh, people who understand the scriptures, who, who think about God, who, who devote time to God, we're in danger of the same errors that they made. And Paul is going to examine those very closely and we'll look into that. But there's also an incredible encouragement uh, to be mission-focused. And that's what we'll talk about in terms of being compelled. Amen? You guys with me? Awesome. Well, let's look here first at uh, caution, right? And there's a, you know, three things here that Paul uh, cautions them about, right? And the first is, is, is there in verse 2 uh, where he begins to talk about how the Israelites, uh, you know, he himself testifies, and he was an example of this, uh, a zeal that is without knowledge. A zeal that is without knowledge, you know, and he, he's quoting there from, from Proverbs 19.2, uh, you know, to turn there where it says, desire without knowledge is not good. How much more will hasty feet miss the way, right? And, and having uh, tremendous passion is, is basically what Proverbs is saying, uh, even passion about knowing God or following God or faith uh, is, is good, but if it's not matched with, matched with knowledge, it is dangerous, Right, and, and Paul is, is poking in on that, and this is an important thing for us to remember because we live in a world that is very much uh, heavy on emphasis in terms of sincerity and being true to yourself. Right, and 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 that is not necessarily a bad thing, but if it's made an ultimate thing, if it's elevated and put you know put on on a, on a higher pedestal than it should be, this idea of having sincerity, sincerity is awesome and it's good. But it's not a substitute, though, for truth. Because we can be sincerely wrong. We can be zealously passionate about something, but be completely off. Right? And Paul himself is a tremendous example of this, uh, as he was zealous for God to the point of trying to destroy the church. But that sincerity and that zeal did not translate to him being correct. Right? But for the Israelites, they, they were caught in that. 
Have you ever heard the, uh, the, the phrase, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing? Anyone ever heard that? Right? A few of you, right? How about, have you heard, uh, to err is human, to forgive is divine? Right? Both of those are, are quotes from Alexander Poet. Uh, Alexander Pope, who was a famous famous poet, and he wrote like a you know one of his most famous works is uh, on uh, what's it called the an essay on criticism that he wrote in 1709, right? But it's an interesting thing because some of you have heard that quote, right? A little knowledge is a dangerous thing, right? And, and it's kind of catchy, you know. Obviously, people remember it. Uh, what's interesting is it's incorrect though. It's not what he says, right? Here's the actual quote, right? He says, "A little learning." is a dangerous thing. Drink deep or taste not the Pyrian spring. There, shallow droughts intoxicate the brain and drinking largely sobers us again. All right, you guys follow that? All right, and so he says, look, a little, le- a little learning is, is a dangerous thing. Not a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, which a lot of people think that's what he said. No, no, a little bit of learning. And he says, look, if you're going to pursue knowing something, don't just do it shallowly. Shallow. Shallow is not a word, right? Don't just do it in a shallow way, right? In the Pyrian Springs, where in Greek mythology, a source of, you know, you know a metaphorical source of wisdom and knowledge and insight. Uh, and he's saying, look, if you're going to drink, drink deeply. Because if you drink and you drink only shallow, you're not going to really grasp the truth. You're actually in danger when you do that, right? And, 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 and it's a very interesting thing, because even with the quote, right, people do that. Right? A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And so they use that quote then to excuse their lack of knowledge or desire to have any knowledge, right? But if they actually read the quote and dug a little bit deeper, they say, well, that's actually what he's saying, right? But what's even more ironic is this text we read today is one of those texts where the evangelical world has taken a little snapshot and drawn huge conclusions that are incorrect. And they do it passionately, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about, you know, starting there in verse 9. And it's a great passage. Right? If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. The scripture says, anyone who believes in, in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on, on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's a very famous passage, and, and it's one of the main scriptures that's used to, to back up the practice of the sinner's prayer. And if you've heard, heard of the sinner's prayer before, you know, the idea that, uh, you, know, you know, soft music begins to play in the background, Scott strumming on the guitar, uh, emotive lyrics. Uh, and then the preacher says, hey, look, if, if, if you uh, feel like you need Jesus, then pray this prayer with me. And, it's, you know, ask Jesus to come in your heart, ask him to forgive you. Uh, again, it's a sincere effort. It's a sincere approach. Crying out to God, that is a good thing, and that is a right thing to do. But the idea that that is the means by which you connect to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is incorrect. A little knowledge could be a bad thing. A little learning, learning those few little verses and thinking, oh, this is what that means, that's a dangerous thing because it's not actually what Scripture teaches. right? Or, or more accurately, it's not what Paul is actually even writing about. All right? Uh, and one of the key phrases there is at the end of that paragraph where, where Paul does say, uh, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a quotation from, from the prophet Joel, uh, chapter 2, I think, verse 26. Uh, and it's quoted two, you know, two other times in the New Testament, or maybe three, depending on your interpretation of 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, but the other, the other two times that it's quoted in the New Testament is Acts 2. 
where Peter gets up and preaches on Pentecost. You know, and you know at the conclusion of that, if you're familiar with that, that, that text, uh, that at the end of that sermon, when he says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The people are cut to the heart and they ask Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? The reason they asked that question is because earlier Peter had quoted Joel chapter 2, telling them, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So they, they asked the question, what should we do? Because they know there's hope because of Peter's quoting of Joel 2. Peter's response is not, bow your heads and pray this prayer with me. Peter's response is not, come forward and, and, and bow and talk to someone and you know, you know, be saved on the spot by praying this mystical prayer. Peter's response is to repent and be baptized. Paul himself, as he retells his conversion in Acts 22, verse 16, uh, retells the fact that after three days of prayer and fasting, after Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus, Ananias comes to Paul and tells him in verse 16, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, call in on his name. Again, quoting from Joel 2. And so when, when Paul writes in Romans 10, hey, everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved, right? Because it's with your, it's your mouth that you, you confess. Uh, it is with your heart that you believe. And there has to be deeper workings. And that's what Paul's talking about there. And it has to be looking to Christ for salvation. He says, when you do that. And in the early church practice, when did they do that? Was that baptism? All right. But again, you see a, a, a uh, again, ironically in our religious world, an example here of zeal without knowledge. People passionately wanting to help other people come to salvation. Preachers passionately wanting to help people to, to, to turn to God, but only giving them a small snippet instead of the fuller picture. And for sure, it's way easier to tell someone to pray some prayer than to challenge them to repent. Telling them to change. Repentance being not even sorrow, but actually the changed behavior. Godly sorrow leads to it, but sorrow in and of itself can be worldly or it can be godly. Right? The choice is ours, right? But, but it's an example, even in our text, of this error that the Jews made. A little bit of zeal, but, but not having enough knowledge. We've got to make sure that, that we don't fall into the same pitfall, right? There's a great danger of us being vaccinated against the truth, guys. We live in an age where you can sign up and someone will text you a scripture every day, even though it's not even someone, it's a computer, right? You know, sending you one verse. And you can feel like, man, okay, that's a little bit. And it is a little bit. But, but, but be careful. We need to be people of the Word. We need to be people who dig into the Word. We talked about this in our, in our midweek on Wednesday this past week, right? Of, of how do we counter temptation? It's by memorizing Scripture. How many of us have memorized the Scripture since then? We must be people of the Word, right? Passion and zeal, that's great, but it must be matched with knowledge. Amen? You know, the second error we see, and much quicker, I promise, uh, in, in our text is that the Jews... Uh, pursued gospel, the, the gospel, they pursued God, really, uh, with an emphasis on the what, but not the why. You know, we've talked heavily about this. If you've been with us, you know, the last three, four, five months as we've gone through Romans, uh, we've probably beat this thing to death, okay? Hopefully we all grasp this idea, right? Uh, you know, having that, that, that heart that just wants to obey the letter of the law, whatever God says, that is a great heart. That is the what, that is the what we are meant to do as followers of God. But if we pursue the what and lose sight of the why, or have the why incorrect, that's dangerous. And Paul's cautioning us against this. Right? For, 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 for the Jews of, Paul de, of Paul's day, at the end of chapter 9, verse 32, he, he says to them, 
that they pursued it. They pursued God. They pursued righteousness, not by faith, but as if it were by works. Even our own text, right? They sought to establish their own righteousness, right? The why they were doing things, the why they were obeying was wrong. And we need to have both correct. Because you can have the why correct, right? You can have the, the firm assurance that you are saved by faith. That is not of yourself. You cannot merit. You cannot earn. You cannot deserve God's salvation. You can have that why correct, but if it's not followed by obedience, then that's incorrect. But for the Jews of Paul's day, they had the what? I mean, they legalistically, these guys tithed their garden herbs. They tithed their garden herbs. How many of you factor that into your contribution? Right? I mean, my stinking mango tree didn't produce any fruit. But if it did, I mean, would I cut up a tenth of it and bring it to share? You know, probably not, right? They were, they were legalistically pursuing the what? But they missed the why. John 6, Jesus challenges them. You, you diligently search the scriptures, but you refuse to come to me. They diligently looked at the scripture of what they're supposed to be doing, but they weren't coming to Jesus. So they had the why wrong. We need to have both correct. The what without the why is incredibly dangerous. You know, and the last one that we see here in this text in terms of caution is this approach of seeking without submitting. Right? Seeking without submitting. And then you see this at the end of our text, right? Uh, you know, most of us probably never read past, uh, you know, verse 17, because that's a great verse, and that's a memory verse that we often read, right? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ, right? And that's, Paul's just gone through kind of a chain of, of how people can, 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 can experience salvation, and we'll talk about that in a second. But he goes on, right? And, and he says there, in, in, in verse 18, did they not hear? So Israel, you know, the Israelites were seeking. The Gentiles weren't seeking, and they found. The Israelites were seeking, so was it a hearing problem? Were they not actually hearing? And Paul says, then of course they were. And his, his, his response basically is quoting from Isaiah saying, you know what, everyone's heard. The word's gone out, right? You know, the, the, the psalmist in Psalm 19 even tells us, look, creation itself declares this. Everyone should see it. It's obvious. Right? You know, verse 19, again, Paul asks, right? Did Israel not understand? So, you know, in their seeking, did they have an understanding problem? So they heard the word, they heard the message of the gospel, they heard Jesus, they heard the apostles, but did they just kind of have like computing problems? Was it just not making sense to them? Right? And for sure, that is part of the problem, and Jesus does talk about that, right? People who are ever hearing but never perceiving, right? But, but here Paul is saying, you know what? In some sense, it's not even that. Because they understood full well what Jesus was talking about. That's why they killed him. Right? I mean, they picked up stones several times to stone him because they understood that he was claiming to be God. Right? They understood that. Right? So it wasn't an understanding problem. And here Paul zooms in uh, in, in verse 19 and tells us, uh, or yeah, verse, you know, starting in verse 19, but down there in verse 21 at the end, uh, where he says, all day long, and he's quoting again from, from, from the prophets, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. You know, and earlier in our text, you know, he also says to them there in verse 3, they didn't know the righteousness of God and instead sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Submission is an important part of seeking. 
You sit here and you sit, you're seeking. You're, you're, you're eager to hear. You're eager to understand. And, and we can hear, hear truth and we can understand truth. But with, with every day you open the Bible or hear the Bible or come to church or, or sit down for a Bible study, there are points of conflict between that message and what's inside of you. Again, the Jews, they heard, they understood, but some of that message didn't align with their own thoughts. And in that moment, they have a choice. They have the pursuit, they have the knowledge to a degree, but will they change their viewpoint to adopt God's view? And many of you as disciples, you've done this at some point in your life. Because you wouldn't have repented if you wouldn't have been baptized. If you hadn't have let go of your paradigm that was wrong, your perspective that was incorrect, and submitted to God's. But in the Jewish people here, we see a, a dangerous example where we can become disobedient and obstinate. we got to ask ourselves, when we find ourselves in situations uh, where it probably doesn't happen when you're reading Scripture on your own, but when someone is trying to talk to you about Scripture and trying to help you connect the dots of how that scriptural principle integrates into your life and you, and you feel that feeling, or maybe just me, maybe I just feel that feeling, of defensiveness, of wanting to justify, of wanting to explain why your perspective is wrong and, and mine is correct. When we feel that feeling, because I'm sure it's not just me, we need to pause for a second in our mind's heart and think about what's happening. Because when we go down a path like that, we are choosing to become a, a, an obstinate people. A people who, who are understanding, and someone is even trying to help us to understand how Scripture relates to our life, to help us to obey it, to help us to put it into practice. But man, that pride begins to well up, and we become obstinate. We become stubborn. We become unsubmissive. And that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. Now, I'm not saying you should listen to anyone and everyone. But man, each one of us, if you are in this room, you better have people in your life who you are doing life with, who you believe that they're invested in your life. They want to see you grow. They want to see you flourish. Their aim is your success because they've chosen to do life with you to a point where your rising is, is, is also their rising. And your failing is also their failing because they are in it with you. When someone like that is bringing something up with you, you got to let go of the guard. You know, one of the Proverbs that's not in the Bible that I often try to remind myself of, you know, is uh, an old Jewish proverb. And it talks about if, if one person calls you a donkey, ignore him. All right? If two people call you a donkey, buy a saddle. Right? Because maybe you are a donkey, right? And it's this idea, okay, you know, the, people say things and people are wrong because they are sinners and they're off and their perspective can be, can be flawed. But my goodness, if you have several people telling you the same thing and yet you choose to be, be, be uh, unsubmissive to them, that's dangerous. That's a dangerous position to have. And you wonder how the Jewish people with all their privilege end up crucifying the Messiah and trying to destroy the apostles and rip apart the church? It's that stubborn pride, right? Seeking God but not being willing to submit. Amen? That's the word of caution, right? Let's look at positive things, though. 
All right? You know, the, 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 that in the midst of, of, of 1911, which is talking about here, here is the problem with the Jewish people. Again, the setting is a Gentile church kind of wondering why are none of the Jews that we really know here following the Messiah. And Paul is unpacking why they're not following the Messiah, you know. But, but in, in, in the midst of that, you get 10, which has a heavy emphasis on, on Paul's heart again for his people. You know, and it, you read it again, right? The beginning of 10. I mean, think about, think about his prayer there. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Look, look back at, at chapter 9, verse 1. We're starting at verse 2, right? He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul's heart, desire, and prayer is for the salvation of people who had hunted him down year after year. People who had systematically followed him from city to city to try to destroy the work of the gospel that he was doing. People that had at times dragged Paul outside the city, stoned him, and left him for dead. People who, who, who had at every step of the way, really, lived in opposition to Paul and tried to stop what he was doing in, in, in the name of God. And yet, his heart's desire and prayer for them is they may be saved. He even looks at those people that, that had caused enormous pain to him and he wishes he was cursed. He wishes he was cut off for their sake. That's crazy. That's a crazy heart of compassion. Maybe you've ever had anyone mistreat you for, for being a Christian, right? Or treated you poorly or, or, you know, you know, I don't know. It's the worst that happens to you, right? You get someone spit on you when you try to invite them to church. That's, you know, I had a guy do that to me in Jamaica. Right. Uh, you know, but, but man, we have we have such little opposition to the gospel and yet we have such little love to those people. And apathy. A pathos, not caring is a dangerous thing. How much of your prayer life is, is dominated and saturated with a prayer for the lost? When's the last time you felt that unceasing anguish? as a friend or a family member, that they would, they would find God. Man, I think we, 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 we love so little. We love so little. And Paul, his example, his challenge is that man, he loves so, so much. Right? So much. And even the end part of the text we read, and we're going to talk more in depth about that in a second here, but, I mean, God saying, verse 21 of 10, all day long I've held out my hands. All day long. Hoping. We'll talk about it more in a second. But man, despite how Israel had treated God, despite how much he had blessed them and then they rebelled against him, he still pursued them. Some of the prophets, man, pushed the bounds on this. And one of the minor prophets, God tells him, hey, go take that prostitute, make her your wife. She leaves him. Goes off with that man. God says, go get her back. 
which is against the Old Testament law. And God says, you, you know that scenario? That's me and me and my people. You see a God that's willing to break his own law in a sense in his pursuit of trying to bring about repentance and maintain a relationship. Do, do you have a heart that, that breaks for the lost world? We live in a country where, man, it looks good on the, on the exterior, guys. But people are hurting. People are lost. Their lives are in shambles. And some of them don't even realize it. Do you have a heart for them? You know, secondly, under this idea of compel, man, we, we have to help. I mean, if you have the first, if you have the prayer, if it's on your heart, then why wouldn't you help? And, and, and this passage is a phenomenal passage in many ways because it, it, it involves us. It helps us to see our part while at the same time putting us in our place in terms of what's our responsibility. Right? The, 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 the part starting kind of at the end of 12 where he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14 where he says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? You, you, you look at that chain and, and you, you invert it. To start at the end and read, 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 reverse, if you can do that, right? Is this idea, we're all sent. If you follow Jesus and you've been baptized, you are meant to go and make disciples of all nations. You are not God's end goal in terms of the, the, the gospel message or salvation. You are a link in a chain. doesn't diminish God's love for you, but the gospel does transform us from being self-oriented to others-oriented, right? And so we're all sent. And Paul writes there that when you preach, when you share God's word, someone has an opportunity to hear. And if they hear, they have an opportunity, they have a choice to believe. And when someone believes, they again have a choice where they can call. They can call on God to be saved. And if they call, they will be saved. That's a promise. That's a guarantee. God says, hey, if someone gets to that point where they call out in the proper way, amen, repentance, you know, faith, repentance, and baptism, when they do that, they will be saved. That is a guarantee. And, and, and almost all of that chain is God's doing. Right? I mean, he, he's come up with the message. Right? All we have to do is open our mouths. And if we do that, you set in motion the chain reaction, right? They can hear, and because they hear, they then have the choice to believe. And if they believe, they can then call, and if they call, they will be saved. Now, we have such a small part to play. But are our mouths open or are they closed? When's the last time you, 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 you helped someone to hear. And amen. I, I think not all of us feel comfortable sitting down and saying a Bible with someone. And then that, that's fine. But there are other things you can do. You could simply just invite someone to church. You can invite someone to come sit down and have a coffee and talk about the Bible with, with one of your friends who you do feel like is more confident than saying the Bible with someone. Right? I mean, our task is, is really so small and minuscule of just find any way to bring someone in contact with the Bible. 
And if we do that, their lives can be changed for eternity because of God. And God is faithful to his part. That's why we're here. Because someone did the simple step of, man, they opened their mouth. You know, and I've been a disciple for since 2001. And I love over the years meeting people that have severe challenges socially. Right? And some, some people here do, and, and they can relate to that. But, but I love meeting people who, for them, talking to other people is absolutely terrifying. And yet, they are incredibly fruitful. And they share their faith, and they invite people to church. And they, they, you know, relationships are difficult for them. Studying the Bible with someone is like petrifying, you know, is incredibly scare, you know, scary for them, and they're terrified of that thought. But they think, you know what, there is something I can do, and I can bring them to church. And, 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 and you think, man, they have so many difficulties, and yet they still understand I have a part to play. And some of you are, are so stinking skilled socially. God has gifted you with the ability to connect to people and reach people and connect with them on, a, on an emotional level, and yet you don't use those skills to connect them to the message that can bring about their salvation. That is scary. That is scary. Right? You ever met somebody where you looked at their life and you thought, man, they have so much potential. There's so much potential. That's, that to me is like one of the most backhanded insults you can have. Right? Someone say, oh, you've got potential. Which means, man, you have skills, but those skills in your hand, that's, that's a waste. Right? God forbid it that he looks at our lives and thinks like this. God forbid it. It's so simple. Right? Give someone an opportunity here. In the back there on the, on the little... I don't know what you want to call it, iPhone charging station, right? There's heaps of invites. Take a staff. Share your faith. In the last few years, God has done great things. Many of you have become Christians or, or come back to God over the last couple of years, but, but understand that, that you're not the end. I mean, Paul is even as he starts his letter to the church in Rome, he says, look, I can't wait to come and encourage you guys, but I'm pressing on to Spain. Paul was he had such love for people. His prayers were dominated by a prayer for, for, for people to be saved. Right? And, 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 and how can we not help? Right? And third and lastly, what we see here is, is God's example in that he holds out tremendous hope for obstinate people. I mean, the hardest group of people that you'll reach out to are people who have similar characteristics to the Jewish people. Religious people who hide behind religiosity and self-righteousness uh, and, and cling to a shallow understanding of Scripture to deflect any meaningful understanding of Scripture, right? And, and those are the most difficult people to reach out to. And, and yet we see here at the end this image of God holding out his hands, hopeful that his people will respond. As I mentioned earlier, it's, it's this image of a parent holding out hope for that stubborn child to come back. And when we think about outreach, and we think about being compelled to reach out, you know, there is an important aspect here of how God approaches stubborn and obstinate people. God doesn't encounter stubbornness and then say, well, let me change the standards then to appease you. God allows the standard to stay the same. God upholds high expectations for what it means to repent, while at the same time holding out hope that the worst of sinners will still turn. 
And we've got to be careful that when we're reaching out to, to stubborn people, or we're trying to help family members who have maybe lost their way to, to come back to God, that we don't allow sentimentality to, to taint the scenario. Because when we look at someone that has zeal, and we look at someone who has a little bit of knowledge, and we look at somebody who is seeking, but the miscomponents, as we discussed, are also present, we can be tempted, right, to have an alarm go off and think, man, what's happening, right? No, but we can be tempted in that moment to allow sentimentality to water down the message. You know, and Scott and I were talking about this this week, of just the importance of, of loving people and showing them uh, that we believe that there is always hope no matter how bad the situation is. But, but we cannot, in the name of that love, lower the standard. Because that's not how God operates. And we've got to realize that if we do do that, in the name of love, lower the standard, the reality is it's not, the, it's not in the name of love for the person, it's in the name of self-love that we do that. Because we would rather the person like us and feel good about us than rather they actually get right with God and love God. And, and so many people try to twist it and, and label things as not loving, when in reality, they have the wrong love, right? And, and here you see Paul and God dealing with the people who, man, they had a little bit of knowledge, they had a little bit of zeal, and they, they, they sought after God. But man, God was not going to change the gospel standard for the Jews. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved except for Jesus. God's going to hold that line. And we have to do the same. You cannot water down the message, but don't ever. Don't ever give up hope. Don't ever give up hope. I mean, we're reading a letter by a guy named Paul, and you think about the early church and what they would have thought about him. I mean, Barnabas had to go to like great lengths to even like let the church let Paul in the fellowship, right? But they, I mean, you think about that scenario. Paul would have overseen the execution of their family members. And yet, he turned. God held out hope. God had a plan for Paul's life, even when he was obstinate, even when he was not submitting to the gospel message. You know, as we leave here today, I encourage you to think about these things, right? Listen to the words of caution. Understand that there is a real danger of zeal without knowledge, having the what without the why, and seeking without submitting. But as we go out into the world, man, we got we to gotta have a heart for the lost. I encourage you every day this week, have time praying for the lost. Have time praying for people. And if you feel like, man, my heart's not into it, man, God, help me with my heart. Help me to look at the world and see them as they are, as sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. I believe if we have that heart and we pray that prayer, you know what, we're going to help. And we're not all going to be able to help in the same capacity, but man, we're going to do something to help someone come in contact with the Word of God. And when we do that, God takes over and does the rest. And no matter how difficult it can be in that process, there is always hope. There's always hope. Now let's remember that as we go into the lost world. Amen? Bow with me. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll stand and uh, sing one final song. Father, we, uh, you know, as we do every week, God, we, we thank you for Paul, the apostle, for, for his writings to the church in Rome, God. We know that, you know, his, his words at time uh, are difficult to understand, that they, they push or bounds of our understanding and our knowledge, God, but we do pray, God, that we can, you know, as people who are most susceptible to the same pitfalls of, of the Jewish people, God, we pray you help us, God. 
Help us to look with, with soberness at the words of caution that we've read, Father. Open up the eyes of our hearts, God. Help us to see, God, if we've you know, allowed defensiveness and pride and self-righteousness, if we've you know, pursued the what without, without a real much thought or care for the why, if we fall into these traps, God, we pray you help us, God. We pray you put people in our path. You, you make it apparent to our friends around us, God. And you help us, God, to, to be humble, to, to help from one another, God. And Father, as, as we do continue to pursue, you know, living our lives in a way where, where, you know, it's reflected clearly that you are our master. We pray, God, that you help us to, to imitate the heart of your son. You know, who stood and looked out over a city that was going to crucify him within days. And, and he wept. And he, he longed to, to gather the people of Jerusalem, you know, like a mother gathers her, her, her chicks. And God, we pray, help us, Father. Help us to look past the, the, the surfaceness, you know, the, the people trying to look like they have it all together, God. Help us to see deeper. We pray that you help our hearts to, to be filled with unceasing anguish, God, for the lost world around us. Because, God, we, we know that, that if we have that on our heart, if our prayers are, are dominated with that rather than prayers for ourselves, that we will help. God, we pray you help us to be a people that are attentive to your spirit. When we go about our days, God, we, we pray that your spirit prompts us, God. That it burns on our hearts, God, the, the, the responsibility we have to open our mouths and help people to hear your word, God. And we, we thank you that, that in that process, our job is so small. It's so insignificant, God. And we pray for, for the people even here now that, that need to hear your word, God. We pray that that, that hearing of the message produces faith. And we pray that as that faith grows and, 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 and gains greater understanding and knowledge, God, that there will be a cry to, to, to call out to you to be saved, Father. We pray you help us, God, to give many people that opportunity, God. We know our, our job is not the end result, but, but to give people the chance. Help us in that, God. And for those people in our lives, God, that you know maybe are perhaps stuck, have lost their way, God. We would pray that you help us, God, to, to, to see just the depth of your kindness, your patience, and your tolerance. To understand that you're a God who, who desires none to perish, but all to come to repentance, God. And we pray that we can be an expectantly hopeful people, God. Hoping and holding out hope, God, that, that many will turn to you, God. Help us in all these things. We cannot do them without your grace and your mercy and forgiveness. Yes, it's all impressive. Amen.